The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, this is always a little more high-tech than we are in, in Berkeley. Uh, it's impressive. Can you hear me? Yes? Good. Um, well, we've been sitting a while. Just take a minute and just stretch your legs out if you need to. Just change your position. Uh, I'm always happy to be here. I think it's been about a year. The last time I came is with a Burmese monk, Upinya Zata, uh, a monk from the Saffron Revolution, and it was an evening. Uh, we had a wonderful time, and he's actually just been in California, and we did a one day at Spirit Rock and uh, a talk at Berkeley Zen Center, and they're doing well ensconced in a new monastery in Brooklyn, New York, uh, my, my homeland. Uh, the only downside of, of coming here is that I, I never see Gil. Uh, it seems like I get to come when he's not here and... Uh, you know, he's a friend and Dharma brother, and uh, I really, I just always get a wonderful feeling when I come here because uh, you're all involved in building a community. Are you building a retreat center? It's built. Where is it? Scotts Valley. Wow, that's great. And for how, how many people can it accommodate? Wow. Oh, we have literature. Um, there will be a little bit of assembly required before it's usable. Assembly required takes four to six weeks. Uh, it has uh, flowers and everything. That's great. Congratulations. Uh, can I take this back to Berkeley? Okay. Oh. I just wanted also to say Happy Mother's Day. I would imagine that there are some mothers here, is that correct? And I would imagine that there is a room full of children. Uh, so I was thinking about that uh, over the last couple of days before I came here. And... Uh, there are various things that one can say, uh, all kinds of things one could say about one's mother, the, the boundless debt that one owes to her. I noticed on a quick glance on uh, Facebook today, like a lot of people were posting photographs, young photographs of their mothers, which was very sweet, younger than photographs of their mothers when their mothers were younger than many of us are at the moment, uh, and just a very warm feeling in that. So I was thinking about the fact of Mother's Day, the practice and mind of being a mother, uh, 
which also, of course, relates to the mind of being a child. And uh, how that manifests in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment practice, whether it's here in meditation and in the world in our daily lives. Not surprisingly, the verse that that came to mind is uh, a verse at the center of the Metta Sutta. Uh, Just as a mother watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one suffuse love throughout the entire world, above, below, and all around, without limit. That is the mind that the Buddha, in one of his earliest teachings, encourages us to practice in relationship to the world. Now, what does that love mean? Uh, The love is not necessarily the same as like. The love of a mother is often a complicated thing. I mean, I remember when uh, just lots of discussion. I have two children uh, who are astonishingly growing up. My daughter's in college and my son is a junior in high school. But when the children were very young, uh, my wife, Lori, who had already a very long and grounded uh, Zen practice, meditation practice, uh, her practice was being with these children. And that lasted for quite a while. Uh, For, um, gee, uh, 10 or 12 years, uh, this is, she was somebody who would go to the meditation hall every day. Uh, And for 10 or 12 years, until the children were comfortable being left by themselves, and we live right at the Zen Center, you know, uh, we live probably no farther from the Zendo than the exit sign across the hall. Uh, But both of us felt the children should not be left alone. There should be, we have a responsibility to be there with them, and that meant relinquishing uh, our previous idea of Buddhist practice. It meant reframing our Buddhist practice. So uh, we would take turns. We alternated day by day. Uh, One day I would stay, I would just stay up uh, in the house and the next day she would. But then your children go through all kinds of difficulties and stages uh, as each of us does. Uh, And the kind of love I think that the Buddha is talking about is uh, 
It has various manifestations. And that's what I'd like to talk about, is what is our attitude of practice? How does love manifest as not turning away, as including everything, first of all, in with that metaphor, just as a mother protects her only child, suffusing love all around, that, that love is including everything that that child is. The lovable and cute and encouraging and the messy and difficult and frustrating and the love that manifests in that relationship is when it's wholesome. And not all of us had probably the ideal childhoods or the ideal parents. Not of all of us maybe are the ideal parents, although I suspect I suspect 99% of you are the ideal parents. Uh, uh, or will be. Um, it means including that child, including everything that you encounter in life as part of yourself, as part of your practice. So, um, I'm going to read you a couple of things and then, and then we can unpack this. Uh, the first is from... Um, the 13th century Zen master Dogen. Uh, and you don't do much study of Zen here, is that correct? That's correct, correct. Yeah. My wife and I were talking, said, she said, does, does Gil teach Zen these days? I said, I don't think, not so much. Uh, anyway, Dogen is uh, kind of where a lot of the mind of our practice comes and... Uh, I have actually I have a book which is for sale out here. The Bodhisattva's Embrace, which dispatches from engaged Buddhism's front lines, and uh, the uh, the cover is a actually a sister and two sisters holding each other, taking care of it in that embrace, that protective embrace. Uh, it's a photograph that I took uh, in on the Thai Burma border. Uh, and then the first essay in this book, and the book talks about my experience in a lot of places in the world and kind of musings on that. The first essay talks about a, a teaching of Dogen's. Uh, and I'll, I'll quote from, from Dogen. Uh, this is an attitude towards He's talking about giving. He's talking about dana, paramita. When the way is entrusted to the way, in other words, when the way is given to the way, we attain the way. When treasures are entrusted to treasures, these treasures certainly become dana. In other words, when there's just this circle of giving, which is the circle of parent child, child, parent. 
The causal, re- oh, I'm sorry, when treasures are entrusted to treasures, these treasures certainly become dana. Then I love this next line. We offer ourselves to ourselves and we offer others to others. How do we do that? How do we offer others to others? For that matter, how do we offer ourselves to ourselves? It's like if we include everything in our meditation and in our life, then we are allowing everything to be just as it is. This allows me to be me and you to be you with no separation between us. We offer ourselves to ourselves, we offer others to others. The causal relationship of giving has a power that pervades the heavens above and the human world below. In another place in this same essay, talking about gifts, uh, Dogen says, and I think this, this goes to the question or the matter of parents and children. When we carefully learn the meaning of dana, both receiving our body, which means being born, and giving up our body, which means sacrifice, it means dying, our dana, our giving. Earning our livelihood and managing our business, this is Dogen, not me, earning our livelihood and managing our business are from the outset nothing other than giving. And then this wonderful next phrase, trusting flowers to the wind and trusting birds to the season may also be the meritorious action of giving. Trusting birds to the wind and trusting trusting flowers to the wind and trusting birds to the season may also be the action of dana. That means allowing things unobstructedly to be themselves. Uh, We have this is a wonderful idea and when we look at it in a very practical sense we see that there's some difficulty in this in our world so that's from Dogen and from Suzuki Roshi uh, Suzuki Roshi says um, he talks about the attitude of practice um, this is a, also a wonderful book, Not Always So. Um, he says, If someone asks me why I practice, I may answer that it is to have a well-oriented mind. The point is not to lose this well-oriented mind. In Japan, children have a Bodhidharma toy. Do you know, uh, and he says, do you know the toy? Do you know the toy? You know, you, you, sometimes you see them in Japanese restaurants. It's a kind of a roundish paper mache doll with two very big eyes. And it's kind of unstable. 
uh, it, it's almost round. And if you push it one way, it rolls back to center. If you push it the other way, it rolls back to the center. So, uh, Suzuki Roshi says, it is made of paper, and even though you push it down, it will stand back up. That is well-oriented practice. People enjoy tossing the doll, tossing the toy around, because wherever it goes, it will stand back up. That's a good example of our practice. So even though I can't say who I am in some conclusive way, uh, and even though you can't say that about yourself or about anyone, even those, even your mother or your child. What we're trying to do as we meditate is to return, not to stay in the center. That's, that's often a mistake that people make when they begin to practice things. You know, in Zen, we put a lot of effort in our posture. Where you sit up. And, you know, if you sat like that uh, and someone came with a hand, they pushed you, if you maintain this posture, you would topple over. Actually, our posture is so upright, but very flexible, like a leaf of grass or a tree in the wind, or like the Bodhidharma doll, when something comes, it moves you away from center. When an emotion comes, you lose your center. How often uh, have I lost my center with my children, or I watch my wife lose her center, frustrated, become frustrated, but because we have practice, we can return to balance. And then something else, an effort comes and moves us the other way. And we return to the center. That's what Suzuki Roshi means by well-oriented mind. A mind that is, has a, an essential stability and confidence. And I think that's what, that's what we cultivate through meditation. We come here or to your lovely new retreat center and sit. And we're not, there's no effort to make your mind blank, correct? There's effort to sit with and look at what arises and to let it flow through and not let it push you off center. If it pushes you off center, okay, then you're off center and then you just return. It's returning again and again and again. It's this active return that allows us to include everything, to include everything in our lives. And what we do here or in, in my place in the Zendo, we just had a, a one-day, wonderful one-day sitting yesterday. It was, such, it was so relaxing. Uh, is to return to the center, to return to a sense of balance and to include everything. And that's what Suzuki Roshi says. Uh, 
you cannot find where the self is. If you say, here is my mind, that's already an idea of self. That's, you're already missing it. Uh, instead of here, it, it is here instead of there. You know, somehow it's in me instead of in you. But uh, that's not true. The mind that we're making right now is the mind of this entire room. It's everybody who's here. Everybody in this room is co-constructing a reality that exists for the time that we are here. How wonderful, really rare. That is a mind, if you sense the energy in the room, it's very well-oriented, it's very stable, it's very peaceful. Even if you may disagree, or even if you may be out of sorts mentally, or maybe your stomach is upset, uh, we're all here creating this. So, uh, you, so Suzuki says, you think your mind is in your head, but where is it? No one knows. So our practice is to be with everything. Without being enslaved by it, you're able to share your practice with everything. You are able to include everything. When you include everything, that is the real self. A mother includes her child as part of the larger truth and reality of her life. And sometimes she has to think about it because sometimes that may not be the choice that uh, part of her mind wants to make. It might want to do something else. Uh, The child includes the mother or the father, or both, as really part of the entire circle of of its reality up to a certain point. And then it begins painfully painfully on all sides to differentiate. But uh, that's good, actually. Uh, We include everything. And this including... This inclusion uh, allows us to give everything to everything. It allows us to give ourselves to ourselves and give others to others. So let me... um, I'm reflecting a bit on my experience yesterday um, at uh, Seshin, at our one-day sitting... Uh, I I am not always a person who's at ease. I have some difficulties with myself. Some like I have some tendencies, uh, some depressive tendencies that I have to work with. Um, and I have a position at Berkeley Zen Center, which means that um, a lot of the problems 
uh, of the community uh, come to my doorstep, which is actually, I chose that, right? <laughs> it's like nobody else chose it. I chose it, so it's okay. But sometimes it gets old. Uh, and sometimes there's the voice, what about me? My voice. Nobody else is saying this. <laughs> That's the problem. They're not saying this. <laughs> um, and for some reason, you know, I just, I woke up in a kind of dark moon. Plus we get up really, I don't know what time you guys, what time do you get up for a retreat? 5.30, okay. Well, let's, it's better than starting at 5. I'll tell you, that half an hour, an hour is worth its weight in gold. Uh, um, so, I'm used to this, though. I know myself well enough to know, okay, there is some uh, passageway to enter a retreat or to enter almost any new activity and it's like, I have to deal with this. I just have to sit with it. But it was hard. It was painful uh, for several hours. And for several hours, uh, I just felt like I was having a hard time. I was not in a good mood. You know, part of me, I'm sure nobody has ever had this experience in retreat, like, okay, get me out of here. <laughs> uh, but you don't go. You stay. You have to stay. Because actually, there is no place else to go. What are you going to do? You're going to go back to bed and turn on the television? You know, there's no place else to go. And I let the rhythm of the day work on me. It's not like I did anything special or had any special practice. We just meditated. We eat together. Uh, and what I noticed was by about 11.30, somehow that whole dualistic way that I was looking at, well, the dualistic way was I was looking at me. Everything, uh, that was not, I was not including everything. I was excluding things and just seeing it from the standpoint of me. It dissolved. It started to dissolve. And then gradually it dissolved. And by the afternoon we had some ceremonies, we had some, we have a work period, because our practice, something I like about Zen practice is, it includes, it does include everything. And so in the course of a retreat day, uh, you sit, you walk, you eat together and serve each other as part of the practice. Cook, the cooks are cooking as part of the practice. They're, not, they're in sashin, they're not like external cooks. Uh, we have a work period, so everybody's working together silently, uh, cleaning up the temple, doing various small jobs. Uh, and so it's kind of a very compressed rhythm of daily life, uh, a sort of compressed monastic life uh, that's not just 
about sitting. It's actually about living. And it's also, since you have to work and eat and be served, it's about relationship. Uh, so when you're served, you every time you receive something, you bow to each other. The server and the receiver bow together. And so there's this mutual exchange. And that did its work on me. And by the afternoon, I realized I was really happy. There was no place else to be. Uh, There's no place else I could imagine wanting to be. And all of a sudden, I noticed when I was happy, I had given myself to myself, as Dogen was saying, that I allowed myself to be free, you know, without any conscious effort. But it, it's what settled and dropped away in the meditation and just allowed that freedom to arise. And then I noticed, oh, actually, everybody else is happy too. And you could see it wasn't something that I was doing. It was something that we were doing. We were doing it together, and you could feel in the course of the day this sort of joyous energy rising. Uh, and it was such a good feeling at the end of the, at, you know, at nine o'clock at the end of the day. Uh, such happiness that we had done this together. Uh, this sort of rare activity, but also this fundamentally human natural activity. I mean, it's really not that special. It's just we're spending a day together uh, looking at ourselves. And as we look at ourselves, the looking is including everything, allowing everything. uh, Suzuki Roshi's phrase, uh, he had this phrase, things as it is, allowing things to be as it is, as a singularity, not as they are, but that's included. But as it is, it's one reality, one world. So, um, in the best of cases, this is how a mother relates to her child and a father too uh, and a teacher too. And each of us, it's not wanting our child to be something for us. Whatever joy we have in our children, it's for what they discover and accomplish in and of themselves. And the joy of watching them include the world, watching them unfold like a flower and be able to include everything. And not necessarily our idea of what it is they should do or how they should be. But the joy is in the freedom and watching their freedom, allowing, giving others to others is exactly how we give ourselves to ourselves. And I think that that's a really essential attitude and if you will, function or purpose even though we have no purpose to meditate. Uh, It's the function of meditation. It's what it does as we practice over time. And I really see this. I see this in our community. 
I see this, you know, I work in, in prisons, uh, and I see when people come week after week, they change and open. And all of a sudden, difficult people, and we, have, we all have difficult people in our lives, uh, act in astonishingly open and compassionate ways. Uh, you can't program this, you don't turn it into a method or a technique, but the Buddha way allows this to arise naturally. So I think that might be a good place for me to end, and we have some time for questions before we finish at 1045, is that correct? So uh, if you have any reflections or questions, let's bring them forth. You mentioned um, letting things be as they are. Um, I have a rather practical question. How do you let ants be as they are when they're in your kitchen? Mm. Um, so actually, sometimes I do. Uh, often I do, and I just... Uh, the first thing I do is I watch them uh, because they're fascinating. You know, I just watched like how it's amazing how they're creating this whole line um and then I may try to distract them or redirect them and then I may poison them (laughs) uh and you know, uh, but usually what I find is that what I've been finding, and I don't do that, we, we haven't put out ant poison for a long time. What I find is that they seem to have a kind of uh, seasonality. You know, they come for a while and they go away. But I must say that lately we've been catching mice, which is really troubling, much more troubling than ants. Uh, and, you know, it's that we let them go for a while, and then it's actually disgusting. Uh, and we find them in all the cabinets. And we actually, uh, after having, and, and for some reason, these humane traps don't seem to work uh, for us. Uh, but um, so I do a little service uh, asking forgiveness. But, you know, it's like, you can't live perfectly. You can't live without taking life. You can't live without setting some kinds of boundaries, and each of us sets them in different places. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's what you think about it, yeah. Thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate the subject, and... It's such a practical one, too, and I love how our practice is also very practical. Mm-hmm. And um, as I was listening to your talk, you know, just given, of course, as we all have something that I'm working with in my life with a group of people that I 
you know, go hiking with and how, oh, you know, this person wants this, oh, right, you know, conflict. And um, it, it occurred to me this morning, it almost could be a Zen koan on how to, how to be with others, letting others be others and ourselves be ourselves and working with when it's appropriate to say something and when it's not, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, and it's, there is no formula. And, no. Yeah. There's no formula, there's no instruction book. And what I have learned, though, is I watch myself very carefully. Um, that when I say watch myself, what I watch is, where's my reactivity coming up? You know, where do I make, you know, some decisions say that we're, that we're trying to negotiate. Where, do, where am I unconsciously making it about me? Uh, and where is my discomfort? Uh, and it's interesting because we're watching my daughter work with this. Uh, and she's a junior in college. And I see her social world. And she's, what's really amazing is watching her actually, she's working with it. She's trying to figure out that very thing where she gets in social situations where people want this of her or she wants something else or she doesn't feel as close to this person as to that person. And she's just asking this fundamental question. I think a fundamental Buddhist question is, how? How is this working right now? If you just keep asking that question rather than locking down on the other way of asking, like, how is this supposed to be? then uh, to create some space and allow things to to take a form and find where are you in the midst of that. So I'm often really just looking at my energy and my sense of, uh, particularly my sense of urgency and my sense of uh, perhaps righteousness. And I try to let go of that without you know, being, allowing myself to be walked over. So uh, this is, everybody has this, this challenge. So good luck. Yeah. Is there a term in the Zen tradition for imperceptible change and I ask this because I'm starting a garden and I'll plant these little seeds and I love watching them but if I sit there and try to see them grow it's completely pointless (laughs) or I'll have tea and I'll come back and see if they've grown or I'll come back the next day or the next week no it's slow but in the end this little seed becomes a plant and practice sometimes seems like that each day I sit and I rise and I don't see any change from when I sat down yet over time right. there's a metaphor uh, that's often used in Soto Zen uh, about enlightenment uh, because that's actually what we're talking about we're talking about coming forth right uh, uh, although well, there's, there's, so that gets me off a slight tangent uh, the way Practice is talked about in the Soto Zen tradition, in Dogen's tradition, is practice enlightenment or practice realization. 
you sit down not to become enlightened, but you sit down because you already are enlightened, because that is your nature. You plant a seed. Within that seed is already the flower and the decay of the flower. It just has to, the causes and conditions have to be brought to bear so that that comes forth, right? So, the metaphor that's used about uh, Soto Zen practice and enlightenment is, it's like walking in the fog. You take a walk in the fog as, a par- as, a, as distinct from walking in a downpour. You walk in the fog and imperceptibly, after a while, your robes are completely soaked through. From moment to moment, you may not feel you know, one degree wetter than the next. But you're walking, you're not knowing where you go, but if you keep walking, you're completely drenched in time. Uh, that is, so I think that speaks to the question that you were asking. Thank you. Maybe one more? Yeah. Thank you so much for this wonderful, inspiring talk. The question about others and otherness that's been very much on my mind this week has been Osama bin Laden and Mm. the celebration and the tremendous changes that are happening. But how to be with that, these events, and with the other and the sense of otherness and all the things that are happening with equanimity and with a sense of centeredness. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. It does. You know, and I think it's been on everybody's mind. Uh, it's certainly been on mine. And so, okay. The confessional part is there's a part of me that's glad that he's not here. Uh, and I'm not sure I particularly admire that part of me or even give a lot of credence, but I have to recognize that that feeling uh, arises in me. But then I have to think about it. You know, uh, I have to think about it in very practical terms. If I think about it, and I think Buddhism is practical terms. Uh, If you think that if you really believe and you've studied and you understand that violence begets violence, then you have, we can have some reasonable expectation that there will be a violent response to this in some way. Uh, it's unavoidable. Um, and uh, if we look also at our uh, addiction to media and to excitement, we see, you know, uh, you know it, it's like almost, it's tapering off maybe a little now, but it's all Obama all the time. You know, and who needs that? I think it's good they didn't release those photographs. I think they'd be, they're unnecessary and inflammatory. But it won't stop anybody in the media from digging because the, they want to sell they want to sell to us, and we have an insatiable, as a culture, an insatiable adi- a- appetite for these images. 
uh, that the images are part of an addiction to excitement and violence. I don't think it will serve us well. And uh, so I worry about what the effect of that is. Uh, I also, you know, if I look at it in a contextual fashion, uh, and this is thinking in a political sense perhaps, but it's also thinking in terms of cause and effect, the, the reality of what's been coming up by way of democratic aspirations in the Middle East over the last three or four months is incredibly exciting and positive, even though we don't know where the end of it is going to be. And I feel like the effect of that, uh, and I was listening to commentators, is to actually marginalize uh, an organization like Al-Qaeda and that way of looking at the world. So, you know, I feel like they were marginalizing themselves. And uh, it might have been better to let that just happen. But one more point, uh, and this is something we were talking about the other day over dinner. Uh, It's very important, I think, for us to realize that what we might think in this room, what you or I might think or anybody might think, and I don't presuppose that we have the same ideas at all, uh, but I would guess that you're going to make, that, that if you had opted in your life to become a general or a president or a high government official, you would have responsibilities to think about things and do things that we, in our lives, may not have those responsibilities. They, they can't turn away from that, whether they make good or bad or mixed decisions. So one of the things that I recall from uh, 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, we had a commemoration at the Nevada nuclear test site. And there were a lot of clergy people there. And what troubled me was that one after another, they, were, they could say with certainty, I would not do that. You know, I would not have made that decision. It was wrong. And I got up there and said, I'm not justifying the decision. I think it was wrong. But I don't know what the hell I would have done if I were in that position. What information would be given to me, how I would make decision, how I would carry the responsibility that I had asked for. So there has our circle of compassion, our circle of including everything, has to include even those that we don't agree with. And to some extent, it may have to include even Osama bin Laden. Uh, so that's, that's a start, and that's also the end. Uh, <laughs> so I'll be out there. I, I, as I said, I do have some, some books that I'm uh, happy to share with you, and we'll have tea and uh, enjoy company for a while. So thank you very much.